If you would take out the Word of God and turn to 2 Corinthians, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 today. Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word, we're getting to exercise today. Sometimes we're doing the order of service and we don't think about the up downs. Second so. Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine. Hear the word of Christ. The apostle Paul with his heart heavy as he thinks about this church in Corinth that is marred in dysfunction, has pled with them to remember the gospel. And as they think about others, he calls them to remember the gospel in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Oh God, I pray that that truth pierces our hearts today. As we think about your glory and we think about your richness, your fullness, God, you aren't selfish with it. You don't hoard your glory to yourself. You have brought it to us in flesh and blood. And you have delivered it to us in such a way that we might become full. That we might become rich. That we might enjoy the benefit of your blood, of your righteousness forever and ever. That we might know God. That we might reign with Jesus forevermore. Oh God, would we delight in your richness today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. May we see it. She gave it all away. I'll never forget those words as my mom looked at me standing in my grandmother's kitchen moments after her funeral. And what was happening is what often happens after someone's funeral, the Family gathers around, I've seen this often, and they don't really want to talk about what just happened and what's going on, and they begin to allow their minds to drift into the future, and they begin to talk about settling the person's accounts and what we're going to do with this, what we're going to do with that, how we're going to get rid of their stuff, and those kind of plans were going on in my grandmother's kitchen. And my mom and my uncle were talking about her, her bank accounts, and they looked at me and they told me how much she had left in her checking account. And it was a very, 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 very small amount. And I looked at them at first and was like, what'd you do with it? Like, what, what'd y'all do? How did that happen? And they were like, no, nothing. We've done nothing. And I'll never forget the words. She literally gave it all away. She has nothing. She has no money left. And that shocked me, and it wasn't because she was rich. It wasn't because she, she had a lot, but it wasn't because she was poor either. Uh, my grandparents lived in a 
1,200 square foot house their whole life that they paid off years ago. They both worked for very good companies. They made a decent living. They, they seemed like the kind of folks that I thought were saving money. They had no debt at all. They, they never made some crazy financial mistake that often puts people behind in life. They weren't foolish with their spending. They didn't have a, a new car or a new thing all the time. But many would say they were foolish in their giving, that they were always giving to somebody, always looking for something to give their money away to, and, and nothing foolish in that way. It was church stuff. It was mission stuff. It was family. It was friends that they were always giving their money to. It, it, eventually, they had to get two separate bank accounts, and I remember when this happened. Because they gave so much money as individuals, and they would always get into arguments. Well, you gave to this, you gave to this, you're giving to the church this amount. Well, I gave this amount. And and their bank accounts were so confusing because they were always giving. I remember one time, my grandfather, we were at a church that actually split in the middle of a building fund. How often does that happen? Wondering why we're still in a warehouse. And he had made a commitment to that building fund. And even after he was a part of another church, after that, we found out for like five years, he had still been giving to that old building fund because he had made a commitment and he was going to fulfill his commitment. And and this is just the way my grandparents managed money. And so I shouldn't have been shocked when my mom looked at me and she said, she literally gave it all away. Like she has no money left. It's gone. And and the family wasn't upset about that. We just sort of laughed and said, yeah, well, we get it. Look around the room. There was hundreds of people at her funeral, and yeah, these are the people she gave her money to. They're here. It's the people she served and and gave to. And after 20 years of of pastoral ministry, I've seen how this plays out. And normally, it works out that the most generous people are rarely those who have the most. Rarely is is that the way it happens in the context of the church. I've never once seen a giving statement of anybody, of any church I've ever been a part of, and never will. But I've just seen the way it plays out in different ways. That those who have the least are usually the most generous. And rarely do folks give themselves into poverty. Never seen that happen. But I have seen people give from their poverty with great joy. And as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, this is the very thing he's talking about. This is a church full of great dysfunction. This is the most dysfunctional church in the New Testament and maybe the history of the world. This church was full of health and wealth teachers who would teach, if you give your money to our ministry, you will be blessed with health and wealth. They were known for the preachers of the day who would come in and make much of their stylish oratory, their speaking abilities. There were churches that, this is true, they were bragging about sexual immorality how free they were in Christ to do whatever they wanted to with their body. And, and, and they made much of that, and they argued over the spiritual gifts. Whose gift is the best? Who, who needs to be front and center? And Paul has to rebuke this church. At one point he says, am I going to have to come like a shepherd with a rod and knock y'all straight? Y'all don't get it. 
And he tells them the solution to all their problems is to remember the foolishness of the gospel, a crucified Messiah. The solution to their problems is to remember Christ and him crucified. And and, and the way that they handle this division is that they love one another. The famous love chapter in Corinthians 13. And, And then he gets to the end and he says, and here is a tangible way that you can be united as a church. And it's through giving an offering. Some of you have a lot. Some of you have a little. You give your money for the sake of the gospel. You're united on mission together. And he gives them an opportunity to give to the churches in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the mother church. And yet in Jerusalem, there are believers who are suffering from severe poverty. And Paul goes out to the Gentile churches and he tells them, you can help them by giving. And so he goes to the nation. Gentiles. And he says, you want to give to the mother church in Jerusalem? I'm taking up an offering for them. And he, and he explains to the Corinthians the generosity of the Macedonian churches in, verse, in chapters 7 and 8. The church in Philippi, the church in Berea, the church in Thessalonica. And he says, as I call you to give like all the other Gentile churches, I want you to know the Macedonians are giving a lot of money. Now, the thing about these believers is that they were suffering severe persecution. They had lost their homes. They had lost their jobs. Some of them were in jail. And he says, you want to know who are giving the most to this offering for Jerusalem? It's the Macedonians. Probably the churches that are the poorest. Probably the churches that have the least. They're they're enduring severe persecution and harm for the sake of the gospel. And they're giving the most. And these churches are like Jesus. That's what he begins to to tell them in chapter 8. The Macedonian churches are a lot like Jesus. That even though they are poor, they're giving from their poverty in great generosity. And notice in Verse 9, this one verse we're going to look at today. You think it's going to be a short sermon, just wait. There's a lot in this verse. He says, you want to know how to give like the Macedonians? You give like Jesus. And you can do this, even the church in Corinth. He says, for you know, verse 9. Paul's word here for knowledge, it is packed with meaning. He's describing a personal intimate, experiential knowledge. This isn't just knowledge of facts. This isn't just knowing some things. No, you know from personal experience. And and, 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 and in 1 Corinthians, he describes this knowledge in the same way a man knows his own thoughts. You know your thoughts like no one else. You know what's going through your mind like no one else. And the Spirit knows the thoughts of God like nobody else. And if you have the Spirit, guess what you know? You know God's thoughts. And you know them on a personal, intimate level. When you believe the gospel, when you trusted in Jesus, and the Spirit came to live within you, you literally have the mind of God imparted to you, and you know it personally. And this knowledge is what's going to drive you to give. And I think it's so appropriate that At Christmas, we celebrate the gospel by giving. We do that in our homes. We do that with our friends, family. We give gifts. We do that at church. We give money. 
I think that is the appropriate way to celebrate Christmas. Because we literally know a gift personally. We know a person as a gift. We know the God, knowledge of God. He is given to us, and so we give. In Colossians, Paul describes this as the, the fullness of God. Everything God is has taken on flesh and has been imparted to us. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews describes the expression of the invisible God. Jesus is the statement, the reflection, the shining forth, the declaration of the invisible God to us. And he has taken on flesh. We have the knowledge of God, the expression of God in flesh. John says the word, the explanation of all reality, of all history, of God's plans has taken on flesh. This knowledge has been given to us in a person named Jesus. And you know him personally, Paul says. And this experiential knowledge is displayed in your giving. It's displayed in our giving because we know God who is a giver. And if his spirit lives with us, we're going to give. There are no such thing. There is no such thing as a Scrooge Christian. It doesn't exist. If you know God who himself, his essence is a gift you're going to overflow in longing to give for others. This is why in chapter 8, he describes the Macedonians as cheerful givers. They give with joy. They give with delight. And it's not that God loves them when they give cheerfully or God loves them because they give cheerfully. It's simply a statement. God loves a cheerful giver. And that's what you are. You are a Cheerful giver because you know God. You know the delight of God's gift. And this is why a Christian cannot be content unless they are giving. You can't be. Our greatest joy comes from giving. And our greatest misery comes from deciding not to give. Think about who will be the happiest person around the tree in your home on Christmas morning. Think about that for just a moment. Who is that person that will be the happiest in your house on Christmas morning? It's mom. Because she has spent months thinking about all her sweet little babies. She's been thinking about the husband, the father. And she has been contemplating what would be the perfect gift and she knows the joy of spending all the money. And, and, and that joy and excitement, as our guts sink, some of y'all check, checked the credit card statement a few days ago, and your guts sink. But she spent all the time and effort for everyone. She's the one who, when all of this happens, she's going to go to the kitchen and start cooking. She is giving and giving and giving, giving. She's planned to give. And in that moment, you look at her and there is delight in her eyes as each person opens their gift. And when you give her a gift, she is the most embarrassed. Why did you get me anything? Why did you do that? I can't believe you did this. Now think about the most miserable person around the tree. This iPhone doesn't have facial recognition. It's the one who gets it all. 
They're the most miserable. They get, they get, they get, they get. And in the same way, the Christian who's got it all in Jesus, you have an eternal kingdom, nothing lacking. You are the most miserable when you're not giving it away. Where is your greatest guilt as a Christian? Where does it come from? For me, it's when I'm not bold to share the gospel. And I think, man, I should have gave the gospel away in that moment. I should have been bold to talk about Jesus. When you look at your life and it's not strategic around giving away the witness of the kingdom. And you feel that guilt. When you have an opportunity to serve someone or give for the sake of the gospel and you don't. That's where the most guilt and misery comes for the Christian. Why? It's not who we are. We are to be givers by nature, and we're to give away the gospel. We're to be bold in evangelism, bold in investing our life, bold in giving. And when we are, we find great joy and delight in that. The happiest Christians are those sharing the gospel. The happiest Christians are those who are living on mission. And the happiest Christians I know are the ones who are giving it all away, not hoarding to themselves. And Paul says, you know this because you know Jesus And you know the grace, notice the text continues, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace means unmerited favor or blessing, despite what we deserve. And you got to get that last part. It's not just favor. It's It's not just blessing. It's undeserved, unmerited. You haven't done anything to earn this. And it's in spite of your sin. You deserve to be judged by God, but you've been given grace by God. And notice where this grace is contained. Our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord means ruler, master, sovereign. The Jews, the Jews referred to Jesus as Jesus or referred to the Messiah as Savior, King. And he says, we have grace in a ruler, in a master, but one who is also our Savior, our deliverer, and our King. He is the Messiah. And for the Gentile, he would have referred to Caesar as Lord. And he says, no. The Jews, king, Messiah, Jesus, he's king, he's Lord, and he's our Lord. Jesus is this gracious ruler who saves us into his kingdom. And in him, we know grace. We know the gift. And Paul just presses this point further. And he says, if our identity is in the person who is a gift... A ruler who's gracious, a king who is gracious, a savior who is gracious. We're going to be those who graciously give. If, if you are a Christian here today, you say you know personally. Notice the text. Our. This is a personal grace. Not to, just to Gentiles far, far away in ancient history. Jews far, far away in ancient history. He is our gracious Lord, gracious savior, gracious king. And you claim to know him. You, you, you claim to know him personally as Lord. And, and here's the grace in that. We're all here as people today who have rejected his rule. If he's a Lord who rules, we have made the decision that we're going to reject his rule. And you know what he does with his rule as Lord? Instead of using that power, using that authority... He uses it not to destroy us, but to rescue us, to save us for for our good. 
And, and so as a Christian here today, you're saying, I know a gracious Lord and Master who created it all. And, and He has been kind to me when He should have wiped me out. And, and He has come near to me. And He has used His power to deliver me. Guess what you're going to do? You're going to be gracious to others. And, and, and you see, Jesus' power and authority has been used for your good. That's what you're going to do. Many, nobody's walking around probably calling you Lord during the week. If you do, we need to have counseling. Because you've got some toxic relationships. But people probably do call you mom, dad, teacher, coach, boss, supervisor, employer. But folks refer to you with those titles of what we would say leadership and authority. And if you know Jesus as a gracious Lord, guess what you do with those things? You use them for the good of others. You, you, you give so others might know the grace of our Lord. You don't use that authority to lord over people, but you use it to leverage it for the good of people. Not just for the thrill of being in charge. Jesus is in charge of everything. And how does he use his charge? For the good of our souls. For our good. He's gracious to us. He is also our gracious Savior. Notice, uh, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that's not just his first name. That's a title. That's who he is. He is Savior. He is Deliverer. And, and we deserve to be judged by him for our sin. And yet Jesus isn't this distant cosmic deity who stands in eternity somewhere with scales in his hand. And, and he's not evaluating you in this way where where. You're, you're lacking of righteousness. You, you don't have what you need to be rescued from your sin. Actually, your, your sin has taken anything that is good out of the scales. And you deserve to be judged. They're not some galactic cosmic scales in the middle of nowhere. No, he is a personal savior. And to display his personal Saving power, what he has done is he has taken on flesh and he himself has put his life and death in the scales so that you meet the standard. He has come near to save you from your sins. And those of you who know that, you give grace. Some of you this week at work, you have been making people earn what you give them. You're looking around the office and you're saying, I will be kind to these people when they're kind to me. I will help them out when they help me out. And I just don't like that person. If they would change, then I would give a little to help them. And that's not the way Jesus functions. Jesus doesn't have a list that he's checking twice. Because if he did, none of us would be nice. We would all be naughty. He's gracious. He's kind. He doesn't give what we have earned because we have earned sin. We have, we have earned with our sin judgment. He has been kind. He's been gracious to us. And so those of us who know that, we are kind and we are gracious to others. We don't function in our marriage making the other person earn something. If you would just love me more, I would respect you more. Well, you know why I don't respect you? Because you don't love me. You know why I don't love you? Because you don't respect me. And there's that endless cycle in some of our marriages. And guess how we're functioning? Like we don't know a gracious Savior. That's not the way Jesus functions. 
He gives despite what we have earned, despite what we deserve. And here he says he is a gracious king, savior king. We deserve to be left in our sin. We deserve to be left in death. And yet the presence of Christmas comes and reverses our sin and saves us from death, fixes our sin and death problem and seats us at his table. He's a gracious king who brings his enemies near. And we claim to know this. This is the point of the whole thing. You know a gracious Lord. You know a gracious Savior. And here you know a gracious King. Who though you were his enemy has brought you near. And some of us this very week. We're going to be seated around the table. And we're going to be seated around people that we thought we loved until this year. And then they posted that thing on Facebook. And then they said that thing at Thanksgiving when we weren't allowed to be there. They said that thing about us and the family gossip line got all the way back around us to us. And now we're seated at the table. And we are those who are enemies of God's king. And yet we've been seated at his table. How are we going to respond? Well, I told y'all what to do with Uncle Charlie's truck. And y'all wouldn't listen to me. Well, I told y'all how we should handle that situation. Why does she get to hand out the gifts every year? Do you know, so-and-so, we, we've done this. We, we are here to celebrate Christmas on Sunday night at 9 p.m. Just because of your work schedule. And, and, and we're in a room full of people that we claim to be family, and yet they feel like enemies. How does the gospel and who you know shape those moments? Will you give them what they deserve? A piece of your mind? Or, or will you give them love and mercy because they need the gospel? Notice this gracious Lord, Savior, King. Notice how he's described here. Though he was rich, the word rich means he was full. He was sufficient. He was this sovereign Lord who had all authority, all glory. He was this sovereign Savior, rich and full, self-sufficient in and of himself. He had no deficiency. He was rich as a king in his relationship with the Father. He is ruling. He is reigning. He lacks nothing as this gracious ruler, Savior, king. And notice what he does. For your sake, he became poor. We talked last week about the other-centeredness of God. It's just a part of his nature. This is what he does for our sake. He sets aside this authority for a time. He sets aside his sufficiency for a time so that he might save us. He sets aside his sonship in a moment on the cross where he is screaming, my God, my God, my father, why have you forsaken me, your son, your king? He sets that aside for a moment though he is rich he becomes poor notice for our sake now notice he became poor he this is not that he lost his riches it, it's not as though Jesus lost his status with God no he became poor and, and it's not as though Jesus reached into his bag and says I need to help you guys out and so from my riches, I'm going to give you what you need. He didn't give us a gift card for Christmas. He, he didn't say, oh, you need a credit for sin, a payment of sin. You need a credit for righteousness in some distant way. He didn't just give 
from his riches. Notice, notice what it says. He became poor. He gave up his wealth and became poor. And we see how that is played out in the life that he lived. Think about who Jesus is, his richness. He is the royal king of the cosmos. He lacks absolutely nothing. He created it all. And yet, for a time, he chooses to live in a home of peasants, a carpenter. He, he, he chooses common means. It, it, the one who created the world, even in his coming, a part of the, the Christmas story that we recite and remember all, over and over again, is that he came to his own, they didn't receive him, and it's displayed in the fact that he came and there was no room for him in an inn. There's no room for him in the world. And, and so how does he live? He lives as a poor traveling preacher. That's who the king of the world, the king of the cosmos is. And he chooses it. He's not being punished by the father. No, he became poor. There is a willful decision. Jesus himself would say, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And that is to be scandalous to us. The one who created the world lives in the world in poverty. It's displayed in how he dies as a common criminal on an instrument of torture. But, but Paul is emphasizing here, he became, he chose this. This is a willful decision on his part. He's not just giving until he's poor. He's giving by becoming poor. And we're to be reminded of that this time of year. As we, as we stand around the manger scene and we see the baby, we talk about this baby being a king we have to understand he is the creator of the world who is rich, who in those moments was choosing a different status. The one who holds every molecule in his hand was held in the hands of his mother. That's an amazing reality that he would choose that. He's not, again, he's not being punished. He didn't lose his status. He chose to do that. He chose to become helpless. How, how often is that knowledge of that one who chose humility in that way displayed in your life? How often do you choose a different status for the good of others? How often this week will you know more than the idiots around the table? You know more than your liberal cousin. You know more about government. You know more about all of those things. But will you choose to keep your mouth shut because they need to first and foremost hear about Jesus. Will you choose humility in those moments? Will you make that decision because you know Jesus? When, 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 you, when you're thinking about all the things that you've done over the last month and all of the downtime that you need. Oh, I've worn myself out. I need a vacation from Christmas vacation. And you're going to be contemplating I just need some downtime. And yet there's this opportunity to serve someone at work. There's this opportunity to, to be a part of some ministry. And there would be nothing wrong with you enjoying downtime. But because you know Jesus, the one who humbled himself and became poor, will you do without some downtime? Will you come, become poor in your downtime? So that you become rich in spending time for the sake of others? Will you make that decision? 
We, we see that's what Jesus does here. Though he was rich, he became poor for us. And notice the result here. So that by, so that you, us, by his poverty might become rich. And in some ways, Paul here is just re-quoting 2 Corinthians 6.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The one who was rich, he was without sin, he became poor. He became sin. He became one who knew sin for us, so that by his poverty we might become rich, so that by in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what theologians throughout history have called the great exchange. God exchanges his riches for our poverty. He takes on our poverty so that we might become rich. God exchanges his righteousness for our sin. He takes on our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is called the great exchange. Christmas is about the great exchange. And and we see here that it wasn't that he just became a poor man. That's not exactly what the verse is referring to. He became poor in sin. Remember when Jesus is describing what a Christian looks like in the world, the Beatitudes? And he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. What that means is you're spiritually bankrupt. Spiritually bankrupt. You're indebted to God. And Jesus became one who was indebted to God. Even though he, he didn't owe God anything. In and of himself, he had everything that God demanded. Think about this. On the cross, in Jesus' person, who he was, his essence, his status, everything in Jesus is exactly what God would demand to rescue a person. God could have rescued Jesus at any moment. In the garden, when he is praying, and, and, and he is in angst and terror of the cross that is coming, in that moment, he still has within him everything that God demands. He is rich spiritually. He is righteous. And yet he chooses to go in debt to God for us. He chooses to be poor. He chooses to say, God, I have nothing to offer you. I'm a guilty sinner in their place. That's what he chooses. He chooses to be poor spiritually. He embraces everything that would have damned you to hell. You are in debt to God for your sin. And and everything in that moment that would have sent you to hell, Jesus takes on himself. Your spiritual poverty. Your deepest, darkest moment. That thought that you've never told anybody else. That thought that you'll never tell anybody else. That, that, that moment that church folks just don't need to hear about. That moment, that season in your life where you earn debt to God. Those emotions where you have earned debt to God. Where you made yourself spiritually bankrupt. Even those insignificant sins where you go, I know it's sin, but. That sin, that's not sin, but. It's infinite rejection of God's will. Gossip, whining, complaining. That's just what everybody does, right? That sin that you earn debt before God for, Jesus takes on himself. Those sins that you don't even know about this moment. You're going to be in BFG 
at some point this next year, and you're going to be asked a question, you're going to go, I didn't know that was sin, and now I do. That sin Jesus took upon himself, all of it, everything that God would hate about you, Jesus took upon himself that you might become rich that you might be given his righteousness, that every good and righteous act that Jesus performed was given to you. Credit it to your account. You were in infinite debt, and now your bank account before God is full of infinite righteousness. All of Jesus' infinite righteousness is there for you. You have become rich in Jesus as if you never sinned and you always obeyed. Everything that the Father delights in in Jesus has been given to you. Think about that. The Father loves the Son because He's the Son. He he loves Jesus more than anything. His infinite glory, God looks at Him and He just, He's overjoyed with the Son. The, the, The Son is amazing to the Father. It's a reflection of everything that is good in Him standing before Him. Everything inherent in him that the Father just loves. And then that righteousness and that glory is displayed in everything Jesus did. And the Father is just overjoyed with love for the Son. His richness has been given to you. You've gone from infinite hatred to infinite love. Because Jesus became infinitely sinful in debt to God on the cross. And when you believe in him, he gives you his infinite righteousness. You're lacking nothing before the Father. Infinite wrath to infinite love. Everything that, would, that, that, that is within you that would cause the heart of God to be disgusted. Everything that you've done that would cause God to push you away, Jesus took upon himself. In everything that would cause the Father to bring the Son in, to to lift Him up and praise Him as the Son, to love Him as the Son, all of that has been given to you. And His fullness has been granted to you. And you will reign with Him forever because you are in Him. He did not use His riches for His own advantage, but yours. You may be sitting around this Christmas and going, it's one of the things my grandmother would always say, as our family grew from Danae and I, two little boys, two little girls, six kids, she would always, she always tried to give the same amount. Then as we got older, she, was, she couldn't do it. She would always give us that envelope and say, I wish I could give more. I wish I could give y'all more for Christmas, but there's just too many of you. And, and that may be the way you feel. I wish I could give more. Or, or, or maybe you're, you're, you're seated around the tree and you're like, man, I'm, I owe a lot of people a lot of things this next year because of what just happened this morning. Or, or, or maybe, you're, I, I, maybe you feel like you did a great job and you got people way more than they deserve this Christmas. Whatever state you're in, in Jesus you're rich if you believe in him today. 
If you trust in him today, and if you trust in him today, there may be folks standing around your funeral saying things like this. He gave it all away. She gave it all away. And I'm only talking about your money. They're going to be talking about your life. He gave it all away. She gave it all away. And he begins this morning with your sin. I wonder if you would exchange your sin for the righteousness of Christ. I wonder if today you would give that all away. That, that those things that are making you so guilty and full of angst, those things that you think God couldn't accept me for that, would you give it all away to become rich in Jesus for his righteousness? Let's pray.